0: One of the ways that we are going into this brand new year is it's called the master class and amanda and i would really enjoy writing and each one of us would would one day love to write write you know books and yet many questions abound you know how do you go about organizing a book chapter by chapter how do you go about marketing a book how do you go about hiring agents and so forth that are necessary in having a book published, all of these many questions. And so there's something called, called the class, where, where, where if you are a creative, anything that you can possibly imagine, they have the absolute best at that crap saying, this is how at least I go about it. And so they have a course with, with an author, his name is James, James Patterson. If you want to learn how to play the guitar really well, Carlos Santana has a class. If you want to learn how to become a better chef, Gordon Ramsay has a course, which probably he, he might even have a class about how to curse out everybody in your kitchen, which might not be recommended in this kind of atmosphere, but that is available if you are interested. Spike Lee has a course in how to create a film, almost anything you can possibly imagine. And yet what we find in the Sermon on the Mounts, is we see Jesus saying, in essence, to us that I am now taking students in the master class about how to experience the greatest life that you can ever possibly imagine. And I am so intrigued with what we find, what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount, that, that as long as it takes this year, I want to really meditate on everything that he says In Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because I look at my own life. And I look at the American church. And I see good things. And yet I see a very Americanized form of Christianity. But what I want more than anything in this world is for a Sermon on the Mount Christianity. And to become that type of person who Jesus speaks about in these three chapters in the book of Matthew. And in this series, my objective is for for me as well as for everybody who who will hear this, that we might have a fresher and a truer sense of just exactly who Jesus is, especially amongst those of us who think that we already know Jesus. Now, as it comes... to what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, it is by far the most read and the most quoted of just about anything Jesus said upon the face of this earth. And yet, strangely, it is often really the most frequently misunderstood. And oftentimes, it is the the absolute least that we practice sometimes. And, And so, for order for us to be captured by what Jesus says here, We must understand just who exactly Jesus is. Well, here in our text in Matthew chapter 5, it begins by, it describes Jesus seeing all of these crowds of people. It's believed that this is in Capernaum. And it says that that as he goes up on this mountain, that, that he sits down. Now, what we need to understand is that as Jesus sits down, he is assuming a position of a rabbi. He is assuming a position of an ancient judge, somebody who has tremendous authority to say everything that he's about to pronounce in the moments which lie ahead for him. What we need to understand also about what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount is that as we will begin in these next several weeks with what we know of as the Beatitudes, As Jesus begins speaking each one of these beatitudes, this is not him giving us just another list of rules for us to get legalistic about. This is not Jesus giving us some academic treatise that is just purely meant to just stimulate our our minds and our brains, but nothing else. I have heard the Sermon on the Mount referred to before as the Ten Commandments of the New Testament. And yet, really, if we really ponder it, his Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is actually more the fruits of the Spirit of the Gospels. Something that I love about Jesus and that just makes him so incredible to me is that Jesus did absolutely nothing by the status quo. I mean, what he says in each one of these Beatitudes as well as really the entire Sermon on the Mount is so radically subversive that it is the verbal and the teaching equivalent to having a green mohawk in the 80s, or even then for that matter. This this was something that these people had never, ever dreamed of hearing in their entire lives. And so let's notice that how Jesus begins not with commands, But actually, he begins pronouncing blessings. This very rare, special breed of people who are about to to start existing in this world, who very soon Jesus will begin referring to as sheep, as little children, as disciples, and in our modern day language, as his apprentices, his followers. See, the Sermon on the Mount is so worth our time this year because really Jesus is laying out, this is the blueprint of Christianity to come. Jesus is announcing that the world can and that it will be ordered differently with or without us. And anybody who wants to get on board with this, this is what it looks like to be a follower and a child and a disciple of anybody who follows after me. So we need to understand who Jesus is, but we also need to understand who this audience is, who Jesus is speaking to here. As we read this each week, we need to to really believe in our hearts that that these were actual real people who really heard Jesus actually say these things. People who would one day form a church. People just like you and people just like me. These were real people. People. And yet, mainly what we need to understand about the Sermon on the Mount, though, we need to remember what the structure was in this time, about how it was all about where you ranked on the hierarchy on the social ladder. That it all all depended on religion and politics in this time. How if you were a rabbi, a sage, if you were a scribe or a Sadducee, that, that was very, very special. If you were very successful in business, you were somebody. And yet that's a very, very exclusive group of people, though. If you were just a carpenter just scraping by, I mean, in the eyes of your culture, you were a nobody. You were an absolute zero, and you felt like an absolute zero. If you asked most people in this time, what is the good life? You would have heard, well... It is all about amassing a sense of prestige. It's all about amassing knowledge and honor in the sight of other people. That is what the good life is. It is trying to earn your way to heaven by by, um, keeping all of these man-made rules that we have come up with. That's the good life, they say. And yet, if you ask us, what is the good life now? I mean, it is something more like this. It is climbing a corporate ladder, right? Stabbing anybody's back who gets in your way at all costs. I don't know what your high school reunions had been like, but in my generation, it's probably much different than that. Because the vibe of most millennial high school reunions, it's really all about who's got the most money, who's driving the you know, flashiest car, who's got the hottest wife, who's got the largest house. That determines What the good life is, that determines who is higher up than anybody else on that social ladder. And yet we ask Jesus, what is the good life? Jesus says the good life is found in places that you would never, ever, ever expect in a million years. Jesus says that the good life is found in being the very poorest person in the room. The good life is when you cry and you mourn your heart out. And it seems like that is all that your life is consisting of. He says that the good life is when you are meek and when you are merciful. When you are champing about being a peacemaker in a world of hate and retribution. He says that the good life is when you are getting your teeth kicked in. When your name is getting slandered and, and, and dragged through the mud when even your own father and mother despise you and disown you because you say that you love me more than anyone in this world, Jesus says that is the greatest life that there is. And yet the world says that is something you need to be ashamed of and and let go of at all costs. Jesus says you need to really defiantly wear that as a badge. You need to rejoice... Because that is what the good life is. Jesus calls these things virtues. And so our text begins in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 2 as it says that, that he opened up his mouth and began to teach them, saying... And then, you know, just so beautiful how the very first words out of Jesus' mouth, here's what his icebreaker is. Where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as he uses that word blessed, it is the, um, in the Greek, it's the word makarios. And I like to hear, hear all of you say makarios, makarios. Makarios. It's the Greek word that sounds like an Italian dish, makarios. I'll have, you know, a plate of the makarios or something like that. I don't know. But what this word means is, I mean, enormous soul-bursting happiness. It means that, that you are to be envied more than all the people on the face of the earth. This word means that you are very, very well off and that you are supremely and utterly blessed in accordance to everybody else. Now, this word does mean happy. It certainly does make us feel happy as we experience this. And yet... Happiness comes and goes in just seconds sometimes. As important as it is that it makes us feel happy, really the main and really the strongest meaning and definition of this word blessed is what we are in the eyes of God. Is that the world looks at certain people as being useless, as being nobodies, as being zeros. And yet in the eyes of God, God sees those exact same people and he says, those people are to be envied. Those are the most well-off people on the face of this planet. These are supremely blessed individuals. And yet then, greatest of all, what does he say in our text? He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen this just recently about any time that we see kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven appear in the Gospels. That, yes, that does mean about one day at the very end of time and of our lives, we will share heaven with Him. It does mean that. And yet mainly and primarily, I believe that what Jesus is saying is that if you are poor in spirit, you will have the kingdom of God in your own soul here on the earth. And in essence, you will bring my very kingdom here into this world, wherever you go about with with my love and my kingdom within you. And so Jesus begins with with a statement that, you know, it sounds normal to us. But to the ears of these people hearing him for the very first time, this was the most unexpected, shocking, outlandish thing that they probably had ever heard in their lives. Where he says, if you want me to tell you about the good life, it's actually those who are poor. And it's interesting how in Luke's account, as Luke is describing what the Sermon on the Mount was, he leaves out in spirit and he just says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And just a couple of weeks back, you might remember how in our message we had images like, like this, about what, what impoverishment, you know, those, those mental images that, that a person who is living in poverty conjures in our minds. It's something like this, or it's something like that. And yet in a much, much larger sense, he means blessed are people in all kinds of ways, especially those who are impoverished in a spiritual sense. People who have no other refuge or dependency but on Jesus Christ. And humility is a big part of being poor in spirit. And yet there's so much more to this than just merely being, being humble in our hearts. And that's because when a person is poor, nobody cares about what they think, about what they say, even in the fact that they exist. They don't even care. When you're a poor person, nobody even dreams of even listening to you, even thinking that you have anything remotely interesting or compelling to offer the world. Most people who live like this are almost automatically universally judged as being failures as being people who love to destroy their own selves. In a number of ways, people who are losers, people who are absolute zeros. This is how a lot of times such individuals have been viewed. But, okay, so in Luke's account it says, blessed are the poor. And so we have a dilemma here. Does God have some kind of a bias in terms of those who are poor? Is God showing partiality in a sense where where if you're a poor person, this automatically means that, that you're going straight to heaven and anybody who's wealthy is going, well, straight to hell. Well, obviously we know that this could not be true because I don't know about you, but among the most beautiful Christians who have lived and died, who I have known, they were among the very wealthiest people who I've ever known. And the same is true at times that the very most unchrist like people who I've ever known, who had lived and died, they were very poor. And so what does Jesus mean as he says, blessed are the poor, or blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, it's this word in the Greek, and, and it's so hard to say that, that I can't even pronounce it. So I'm not even going to try to pronounce this word. It's a lot harder to pronounce than "makarios." So... I'll just leave it at that but but here's what this word means. When Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit, this this word means a helpless beggar. It means a person who is crouching, a person who is cowering in fear, and one whose existence is just roving about in their own particular wretchedness. This is what this word means. Really, in other words, these are people who go through their their lives feeling about this big, who feel about this special, who feel this important as they live their lives. And yet, when they come to a knowledge of what they have done in terms of nailing Jesus to the cross, they have this soul-crushing grief and sensitivity to their sins. They have this juvenile, almost infantile sensitivity to Jesus. And they love him just as a child would. And many times Jesus uses many words to describe people like this. Here he uses the word poor. Elsewhere he might use use a word like sick. Where he says that it's only those who are sick who know that they need a physician, not those who think that they are already well off, apart from the physician. And yet, over and over and over again, whether Jesus is saying sick or poor or, or servant or child, what his main point is, is that, is that my kingdom belongs to only people who have hearts just like this. In other words, you've got to become zero in order to receive his riches. I believe this is why this is such a narrow road, because most of us don't want to become zeros. We think that that is a weakness, we th- but Jesus says that it is a virtue. And these people are so blessed because life and adversity has already opened up their eyes in ways that, that a lot of us still are blind to, even to this day really they almost have this advantage as they hear the good news that that most people don't have. And that's because they are hearing the good news without any sense of of arrogance, of snobbery, or of self-righteousness that a lot of people might have as they, they hear it. And yet here's where this parable starts becoming very strange to our ears when we realize that when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, these are not the God snobs. These are not the church attendance gurus or the Bible trivia champs. But rather, these are the people in our present day world who don't know Romans from Huckleberry Finn or Downton Abbey. These are people in our world who don't know the words to Amazing Grace. It's people who have spent their entire lives reasoning in their own hearts that I could never go to a worship service because I would burst into a ball of flames if I did something like that. It's the people who we all know, every one of us knows somebody like this, who where either it's been a very long time since they have gone to, to a worship service, or they have never once in their life set foot in a church building that person does not need to become like the people in that church building but that the people in the church building actually need to change and become like that guy like that woman i'm not saying let's stop going to our worship services i'm not saying that at all but what i am saying is let's never go to a worship service thinking that we have arrived as christians thinking that we have mastered God or the Scriptures, thinking that we have restored the church in a perfect way. We have done none of those things. That blessed are those who are not Sunday morning regulars. Blessed are those who have never sung the old rugged cross, who have never once in their lives heard John 3.16, but when they do come, when they do pray, when they do sing these songs, when they do hear this Gospel, their hearts are erupting with gratitude, with remorse, with their absolute need and reliance upon Jesus Christ to rescue them, and with absolute love and joy for the life that is found in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus is speaking about. And how this looks like for all the rest of us who do go to worship assemblies often, who do read the scriptures often, who have sung the old rug across six kajillion and nine times, it means that we do all of these things, but it's as if it's the first time that we have ever sung it, or heard it, or that we have been together in our entire lives as Christians. Jesus is so much more interested in us having the heart of a zero, then, in how many verses of the Bible that we can quote, or how many pews that we can occupy throughout the years. This is what it's all about. And that's because in our world, the zeros will forevermore be the unapproachable dregs of society that are to be stepped over and disregarded. But in the eyes of God, those zeros are actually the heroes. And they are the only ones who will ever taste of the only true good life that there is attainable in this universe. It's why Jesus says that that all of those who will make themselves first, they're actually going to be last. And all of those rare breed of people who make themselves lowest and last, they're going to be the greatest and they're going to be the first in my kingdom. And if we look closely at this though, we will find that the examples are all around us wherever we might venture to look. There are master class instructors for the Sermon on the Mount everywhere. There is one theologian who says this. His name is Richard Rohr. He says, he says that Jesus is a living parable. He is an audiovisual icon of a more attractive alternative. We cannot even imagine it much less imitate it unless we see Him do it first. And we know that Jesus did do this first before we ever could because we saw two weeks ago once again how Jesus is filthy, stinking rich in heaven. He becomes third world poor for us. How Jesus goes from being a zillion to a zero so that we could become a zillion in Him. Jesus has exemplified this, but it's also all throughout Scripture. In our last series about Advent, you remember how in those first two weeks we saw people who were poor in spirit. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, you might remember how a man covered with leprosy bows before Jesus. See, what he's doing is he is crouching, he is cowardly, you know, he is cowering, he is wretchedly bowing at the feet of Jesus. The zeros are the heroes. We also remember a woman who has 12 years of hemorrhaging. And what is she doing? She is crouching. She is cowering. She is wretchedly falling at the feet of Jesus. That's because the zeros are the heroes. On this other occasion, Jesus is invited to a lunch at a Pharisee's house one day. And this Pharisee refuses a cultural norm and he does not wash Jesus' feet. He does not kiss Him on His cheek, as was standard. And yet, a little bit later, as they're all sitting there, a woman comes in, whose sins are public knowledge on the streets. There is a 99% chance that this woman is a prostitute, or, or had been a prostitute not that long ago. But she is so heartbroken over her sins, she is washing Jesus' feet with, with her tears drying them with her hair. She is kissing His feet in ways that that the Pharisee would not kiss Jesus' face. She is pouring the most expensive perfume that she could afford all over His feet and she is anointing Him. And she is crouching. She is cowering. She is wretchedly falling at the feet of Jesus. And she is showing us yet another time that, that it's the zeros who are actually the heroes. Another time Jesus is in the middle of a parable and he speaks about a couple of men who are praying at the temple one day one of them is a pharisee and he's dressed i mean to the nines and he's praying god you are so lucky as well as everybody else you are all so lucky that that you got me walking this earth because i i you know fast twice or three times a week I give a lot of my money to the poor. I can pray the most beautiful prayers. I am nothing like this guy over here who's a publican. This guy over here who sins. And Jesus says that as this other man prays, he too is so heartbroken over his sins. And he is so in awe of the God who he stands before. He can't even look up into the clouds, but, but all he can do is just beat his chest. Hang his head, cower, crouch, wretchedly fall at the feet of his father and say, God, have mercy on me because I am a sinner. It's the zeros who are the heroes. It's in scripture, but it's also in our world. A year ago, I spoke about a church that I had found in Florida made entirely of people who were homeless. And these people change my understanding of God forever. This is a church that 90% of evangelicals want nothing to do with. And that's because this church has a smoking section. And here's a picture of a woman. If you can see, she, she has in one hand Lord's Supper bread. In the other hand, she has a lit cigarette in her hand. A lot of evangelicals look at this and they get offended by this very quickly. Evangelicals don't know what to do with this. I mean, it's people who, don't, who can't really quote a lot of Scripture, most of them. But when these people worship, when these people pray to God, when these people hear the gospel proclaimed to them, I mean, I've been up there speaking to them before. And just in the middle of the message, you can just just hear women wailing, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Others might be saying, God, help me, God. I need you, Jesus. And you're just standing up there and you just start sobbing as you speak to them because you realize that you are witnessing the kingdom of God upon the earth. You are in the presence of people who are so utterly, beautifully, gorgeously poor in spirit. This is what Jesus wants. And the dirty little secret about this church I quickly discovered is that it's really, you know, anybody who is outside of this homeless church comes into their thinking, okay, these people need me to, to help them. And yet, really, what it is, is it brings people of all kinds of denominations and church tribes together with those who are homeless. And when you're there, what washes over you is wait a minute. It's not that they need to change to become just like me, but I actually need to change and become just like them in so many ways. And you leave an atmosphere like this, and you think that you just went to heaven. And yet, then you go back into a cathedral. And I left this kind of atmosphere once, and I I went back to Arizona in my hometown church. And I had people looking me up and down, scowling at me because I did not have a three-piece suit on on a Wednesday night. I'm thinking, man, what is going on here? In this atmosphere... I mean, I spoke on one occasion there less than a year ago. I, I was wearing a misfit shirt on, shorts on. I spent the last half of this sermon illustration wearing nothing but my shorts, literally. I had no shirt on. And yet not one person came up saying, how dare you do that? You've got to wear the proper clothes in the house of the Lord. Nobody's even dreamed of saying that. All they cared about was Jesus and how we can love each other the way Jesus wants us to. That's all they cared about. And yet, you go into a cathedral, even dressed nicely, and people are looking you up and down. Because in a lot of cathedrals, you've you got to comb your hair really nice. You've got to shine your shoes and you have to look as if you are absolutely perfect. Jesus says none of that. It, you know, it really doesn't matter what we're wearing on the outside. We can wear nice clothes. But what Jesus cares about more than anything in this entire world is at heart. When you worship God, when you sing to me, when you give to me, when you love one another as Christians, become zeros all over again, deep in your bones. Deepen your soul. And you will experience my kingdom upon this earth. It is is a beautiful thing. And there is one last example that comes to mind about a person who exemplified poor in spirit, but in the wrong way. We We read about a young man, maybe he was about my age even, where he comes before Jesus one day saying, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he thinks that he is already doing it. He just wants confirmation from Jesus. Jesus says, you've got to love me more than anything. You've got to love me more than anyone. I mean, it's a guy who knew the Scriptures frontwards and backwards. This is a guy who had perfect attendance in the synagogues. It's a guy who kept all of the commands from, from the crib. But ultimately, as we all know the outcome of the story, he loved his stuff more than Jesus. He would much rather be rich in this present world than to be rich in Jesus, or to actually follow after Jesus. And so what does he do? He turns around from Jesus, he hangs his head, and he walks away grieving in his heart. He walks away sad, causing Jesus to say, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He does not say how impossible it is. But he does say how hard it is for a rich man, whether literally rich or symbolically rich, to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, we've got to become poor, wretchedly poor, cowering in spirit before God. Even before we could become rich in God. This is is why Paul says, very late into his Christian life, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Once again, it's that publican saying, Lord, have mercy on me. and He's just crying his eyes out. I'm nothing but a sinner and I need you. So, really the question that we are confronted with this morning is, is there anything that is causing us to walk away from Jesus, crestfallen? What is preventing us from from truly following Jesus Sunday through Saturday? Maybe it's this mirage that we've got it all together—that in the car we are one person who has our lives or our marriage or our spirituality in shambles, but we walk inside a church building and we have this mask on and everything is just perfect in my life. Jesus is saying, do not conceal that stuff. Give all of that to me and, and, and live and experience my kingdom within your soul. How I would have answered that question not that long ago even was, what was preventing me from really following Jesus and, and walking away as sad as I was? was that I was more interested in being a Bible answer Ninja for, for everything. I was so busy, I was using so much energy and time, trying to guard all of these unwritten rules of 20th century, 21st century American Church of Christ customs, rather than actually following in the footsteps of Jesus as his apprentice. I discovered that that when we do that, we're going to walk away very, 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 very sad. That's not the good life. And so what I want to challenge us to is is this week, however it looks like for us at heart, in worship, in our love for, for, for our brothers and sisters, find a way to become a zero all over again at heart. And you will love Jesus and love the Christian life more than you ever have before. And then lastly, choose maybe just, just one of those examples that we had listed. Maybe the woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Or maybe it's the publican saying, God, be merciful to me. But if we can, maybe just a few minutes each day, walk with these people every single day, pray about it, ponder what they were like. And as we pray, ask God, God, make me like this person because this person is so much like you. In the world, the good life is those who have the most money, who drive the fastest cars, and who live in the largest of homes. And yet, to our Lord and Savior, and to to our Judge, and to our King of kings and Lord of lords, he says that the zeros are the ones who are the heroes. It's the zeros who are the only ones who are walking into my kingdom and who will experience it. Let's make our choice. Our Father in heaven, we remain in awe of you and and we ask you that when we sing to you and when we hear your word, I pray, Father, that, that it can be as if we had never heard it ever before. I pray that we can be like those very rare people in the world who might know more than anyone else in the room, but who feel as if they know the very least. And after all, we do know far less about you and about what it means to follow you than we would dare admit or even dream. And yet this is why we have Scripture. This is why we have each other. Father, let this be a year of unimaginable growth from, the, from all the way at the pulpit, all the way at the back pew. Father, we want to be a Sermon on the Mount kind of church. And we want to be a Sermon on the Mount people.